Well, over the uh, last few weeks, uh, if you remember, we've been working our way through the first couple of chapters of Paul's letter to the Colossians. And as we've been seeing, one of the recurring themes has been that God's love for us is completely and utterly free. It's not at all dependent on our performance, how good or how bad we are. Now, a lot of people say, when they hear this whole idea of God's unconditional love, well, look, if I really believed that, it certainly wouldn't change the way I lived. I mean, if God loved me that freely and that unconditionally, then haha, I could live any way I wanted. Ever secretly thought that way? Oh, far too holy for that. Sorry for misjudging the audience, but... What we're going to do is, as we get into the passage today, we're going to see that what Paul has to say challenges that way of thinking head on. The basic message in today's passage is, look, if you're a Christian, if you are genuinely following Jesus, your life changes. The gospel absolutely transforms your life, and not merely in spite of the freeness of God's love, but actually because of it. That's the message in today's passage. So if you say, well, look, I believe in Jesus, I believe the gospel, the good news about him, and yet your life doesn't really change in a way that other people can see and observe, you haven't truly grasped the good news about Jesus. A true understanding of the gospel always and everywhere brings about radical life change. How does it do that? Well, let's see what Paul has to say. We'll pick it up in Colossians 3 and verse 1. Paul says, Since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all his glory. Just going to pause there. First two chapters, Paul has been telling everyone who will listen about the centrality of Christ. He's simply been saying, this is who Jesus Christ is. This is what Jesus has done. Here's the deity or the godness of Christ. Here's the sufficiency of Christ for all of life. Here's why we put our trust in Christ. But the first verse of chapter 3 is a bit of a turning point. Although chapters 1 and 2 are written to everyone about this is who Christ is, Chapter 3 goes, since you've been raised with Christ. It's like Paul shifting from telling everyone everywhere about who Christ is. He's shifting now to speaking specifically to those who believe in Christ and follow him. Now here's why this is so important. In almost all of Paul's letters in the New Testament, there's this very specific rhythm. The intros are very similar how he closes them out are very similar, almost all set up like this. Here's the nature, here's the character of God. Here's spelt out in great detail what the gospel really is. And now, in light of this understanding of the gospel, here's how we're to go and live. So in Paul's mind, Christian behavior 
always follows after becoming a Christian. Now, I can't stress how important that is, because if you don't understand that, then you'll keep falling into the trap of thinking that your behavior is what saves you or what disqualifies you. But Christ actually came to destroy that whole way of thinking. And so, although Paul's going to shift into talking about Christian living, how we're to behave, how we're to act, how we're to live, I'm going to keep bringing you back to Colossians 3 verse 1 that says, since you've been raised with Christ. Paul's saying, if you're a believer in Christ, then this is how we are to live. Let's keep reading. Verse 5. So, put to death the sinful, earthly things lurking within you. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. Don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater worshipping the things of this world. Because of these sins, the anger of God is coming. You used to do these things when your life was still part of this world. But now is the time to get rid of anger, rage, malicious behavior, slander, and dirty language. Don't lie to each other, for you have stripped off your old sinful nature and all its wicked deeds. Put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. In this new life, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free. Christ is all that matters and he lives in all of us. Since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourselves with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. And let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace and always be thankful. Let the message about Christ in all its richness fill your lives. Teach and counsel each other with all the wisdom he gives. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God with thankful hearts. And whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Now, I love what Paul does here. He's got this giant list of things that everyone agrees to be sinful, like sexual immorality and impurity and lust and evil desires. But then he kind of rolls it all in with everyday stuff like getting angry or being greedy, or having a little bit of malice, or slandering other people, or struggling to forgive others, or lying. He lists it out in such a way that nobody in this room gets off scot-free. And then he says, since you've been raised with Christ, then you need to put these things in your life to death. Now, 
I could end there, and I think probably all of us, if we're being honest, would have something to go away and change in our lives as a result. But here's where I think things get ever so slightly complicated. If God is completely sovereign, which he absolutely is, and if we're saved by grace through faith, and even the faith to believe has been given to us by God, if that's true, then it seems to me that people get confused when it comes to our responsibility to grow in maturity as believers. I mean, what does it look like for us to pursue godliness without falling back into the whole trap of trying to earn our salvation or thinking that our standing, our position before God is completely dependent on our behavior? I want to read you a great great quote from a guy called D.A. Carson. He says this, "'People do not drift towards holiness.'" Apart from, and I want you to remember this phrase, we're going to come back to it, apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate towards godliness, towards prayer, towards obedience to Scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift towards compromise and call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience and call it freedom. We drift towards superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch towards prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide towards godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. Now, I love that quote uh, because it's absolutely true. Nobody accidentally becomes godly. No one just stumbles into becoming more and more like Jesus. It just doesn't happen without intentional effort. But how do you pursue godliness without falling into a checklist version of Christianity where you step outside of grace and begin to try to earn once again what has already been freely given to you? So that's the question. Because what we know about Christian living is, it's not static. It must lead to substantial change in us. But how do we do that? How does that actually work? Well, what I want to do for the rest of the time I'm with you this morning is go over five things that I think mark this grace-driven effort that D.A. Carson was talking about in that quote. Now, just to warn you, my second point of five is quite long, Uh, points three, four, and five are very quick. So uh, if we get to kind of 20 past, I'm still on point two. Do not fear. The rest will be much quicker. Okay, here's the first point. Grace-driven effort comes from a new heart. Grace-driven effort comes from a new heart. Back in Colossians 1, if you remember, Paul describes how we're transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light. Similarly, in his letter to the Corinthians, you have this whole idea that we are walking in darkness and then we're brought into the light. And again, in Ephesians, Paul says we were dead in our transgressions and sins and now we're made alive in Christ. It's what Jesus himself was talking about when this guy called Nicodemus comes up to him and asks him, Jesus, what must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus tells him what? Do you remember? 
You must be born again. Jesus is talking about this whole idea of regeneration. It's as though we are given a brand new heart. It's like all of a sudden we have this desire within us to know Jesus more, to love him, to press into him, to make much of him. That's how those who have been raised with Christ pursue godliness through grace-driven effort. They've been given new hearts, or as Paul puts it here in verse 10, verse 10 new natures. How for the legalist, the person who insists on just following lots of rules and regulations, that's simply not true. The legalist pursues God really out of a list of things. It's like, I ought to do this rather than I want to. Uh, I do it to earn or to pay back rather than from a place of acceptance and joy. But grace-driven effort is birthed out of a new heart, a regenerated spirit that was given to us by the Holy Spirit of God. That's the first thing. Grace-driven effort comes from a new heart or a new nature. Secondly, grace-driven effort uses the weapons of grace. Let me share with you three of the primary weapons of grace. First up is the blood of Christ. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 2 verse 13. He says, but now you have been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you've been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. Let me tell you why that is one of my favorite verses. Paul's saying, I have been brought near to God, not by my own effort, but by the blood of Christ. So my right standing has absolutely nothing to do with me. It's wholly down to the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Now this is incredibly reassuring to me, because believe it or not, there are times when I fall and when I fail. I'll be really honest and straight with you. There are times, for example, that bad things happen to certain people and secretly, I'm kind of glad they happened. That there's this thing in me that goes, yes, justice at last. However, I'm a bit of a hypocrite because I don't want justice for me. I want grace and mercy and kindness and forgiveness and for God to go I'm not going to treat you as you deserve but there are other people I'm like God will you just completely blow them up and if something good happens to that person or that group of people I'm kind of like secretly oh now I'm ashamed of that and that is absolutely wrong of me but I'm not the only one unclean so please don't judge me you are probably not sitting there completely innocent we all have these areas in our lives but maybe we don't act on them so no one ever sees them most of the time it's not external it's absolutely internal but it's still wicked and it's still there and so for me I have to constantly remind myself in those moments that God doesn't love me because I'm perfect. 
He loves me because of the blood of Christ shed on the cross as a sacrifice in my place for my sin, for my forgiveness. And I have acceptance with him and free reign to come to him, not because I'm doing particularly well or particularly badly, but because he shed his blood for me. And through the lens of that blood, he sees me as spotless, perfect, his dearly loved adopted son. And so we fight that lingering sinfulness in our hearts with the blood of Christ. Second, we also fight it with the word of God. 2 Timothy 3 verse 16 says, All scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. I'm going to come back to that one in a second, but first of all, let me do one more. We have the blood of Christ, the word of God, and thirdly, we have the promises of the new covenant. Hebrews 9.15 says, this is why Christ is the one who mediates a new covenant between God and people, so that all who are called can receive the eternal inheritance that God has promised them. For Christ died to set them free from the penalty of the sins they'd committed under that first covenant. So just to explain, under the first covenant, the Old Testament, under the law, everybody fails. Already covered that. Everyone in this room, in some way, some more than others, but all of us have fallen short of the law, of God's standard. In fact, it's part of the purpose of the law to highlight, to show you that you fall short in order to lead you to Christ. Because the whole promise of the new covenant is that where you've stumbled and fallen and earned the wrath of God, Christ has intervened. That's the promise, that through his death and resurrection, Jesus erased the curse of the old covenant by paying its price in full. And so we're forgiven and we are free because of Christ. And not only that, there's also this promise of eternal inheritance for those who are in him. That's why Paul says, right at the beginning of Colossians 3, verse 1, we're to set our sights on the realities of heaven and not be so consumed with the things of this earth that we forget the glory that's to come. That's other reason. You're going to hear me constantly saying over and over and over again, you need to know the Word of God. You need to read your Bibles. You need to know the Scriptures. It's because that is where we learn the truth about the blood of Christ and the promise of the new covenant, our position in Christ. And so the Bible becomes like the primary weapon of grace against the residual lingering effects of sin in our lives. And so when I have this thought of, yeah, I'm, I'm secretly glad that other person suffered and then I, I feel convicted and I'm ashamed and begin to hate that wickedness in my heart. In that moment, I don't run from God, but I run to him. It's the mark of Christian maturity that when you stumble and fall, you run to God, you don't run from him. It shows you clearly understand what the gospel is. 
It's also a clear indication of your spiritual immaturity when you stumble and you fall and you run away from him and desperately try to clean yourself up in order to be worthy enough to come back to him. And so we fight the lingering effects of sin in our lives with these grace-driven weapons. The legalist, however, is constantly trying to use their own willpower, their own strengths, their own effort. They're trying to do it by themselves. And when they fail, as inevitably they do, they end up feeling like God could never love them. And they feel disqualified. And so they just can't see the point in trying to pray or worship or engage with God in any way. You know, I've seen that happen to so many people. And it's absolutely tragic and absolutely unnecessary. I'll try and give you an illustration that hopefully will help you see things a bit more from God's perspective. How many of you, you've ever seen a child trying to walk? Any of you? Yeah, a few of you. Uh, How many parents in the room can remember your own children's first steps? Any remember that? Yeah, a few of you. Pretty comical to watch, isn't it? It's like they kind of pull themselves up on the coffee table or the, the couch or whatever, and they kind of shuffle along while desperately holding on for dear life. But what happens is that eventually, one day, they take their hands off. They, they let go and let physics take over. It's like in that moment, they've got two choices to make. They either stick their foot out or fall over, and potentially die. And so they stick their foot out. Now with physics, we've got momentum. So step, 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 and then they fall over. And what happens? The whole place erupts. It's like, yeah, are you going to tweet it? Okay, you tweet it, I'll retweet it. Uh, 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 I'll stick it on Facebook. Did anyone catch video of that? Oh, no, no, no. Let's try and get video again so I can let everyone in the whole world see what's just happened as though these are the first steps ever of all humanity. I'll tell you what I've never seen. I've never seen any parent respond to step, step, step four by going, idiot. I've never seen a father or a mother point to their child who falls over after their first three or four steps and go, this child of mine is an abject failure. I'm going to completely and utterly disinherit them. I want nothing more to do with them. I've just never seen that happen. There's always this explosion of rejoicing that takes place over just three or four steps. Now, what we've learned in Colossians is that these things are shadows of a deeper, more beautiful reality. Because of grace, and because our Heavenly Father doesn't see through the lens of our perfection, but rather through the lens of His own Son's perfection, it's like there's this rejoicing in and over us when there's this step, 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 fall. It's like all of heaven erupts in praise over step, 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 fall because we are starting to walk. And I want to continually add that you show yourself to be immature spiritually when you fall in that moment and go, I'm such a dreadful failure. God, God wants nothing more to do with me. No, we stumble, 
and fall, but we still run to him and fall into his arms. It's a grace-driven effort. It comes from a regenerated new heart, new nature. Grace-driven effort uses some of those weapons of grace. And thirdly, grace-driven effort fights for a reason that goes well beyond conscience and peace. Grace-driven effort isn't primarily motivated by the fact that when I sin, I feel bad about me. As Paul points out in verse 17, whatever we do or say, we do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus. In short, grace-driven effort flows from this understanding that when we sin, we make light of the God of the universe. We belittle and smear Christ's name. We grieve the Holy Spirit of God who lives within us. And so our hearts break because God has been so good and so generous and so kind to us. And yet with our actions, we've mocked him and belittled him. It's like grace-driven effort is birthed out of the place of, I can't believe I've done this to him. It's the spirit that David confessed with when he fell into grievous sin. He said, against you and you only, Lord, have I sinned. And so our motivation in seeking to put sin to death, to live a godly life, isn't built primarily on, I just feel really bad when I do this or I hate this about me, I wish I could change, or I got found out, or I hate that I've made a mess of my life. That's simply worldly sorrow. It's not genuine repentance. Godly sorrow goes, look, ultimately I've offended God, and it leads to repentance. I will not live this way any longer. And so the motivation for killing, lingering sin in our lives isn't that we might just ease our own conscience a bit, but that we might not grieve the God of the universe and belittle his name. Fourthly, grace-driven effort comes from being dead to sin, not just forsaking it. Remember the passage that says, you won't be tempted beyond what you can bear because God is faithful. Now usually, when you hear that passage preached, the application is, look, God won't put you in a situation that you cannot get out of. But I'd encourage you to look at that passage in light of what we've just seen. Because you've been given a new heart, a new nature, and the weapons of grace, there is now no situation that you can't get out of. So it's not that God has to go, I've got to be really careful with them because they're not quite ready for the type of warfare that's over there that they might get defeated. So I'm going to keep them over here out of harm's way. But rather it's if you understand that you've been born again, if you grasp that you have God's empowering presence, his Holy Spirit inside you, if you understand some of those weapons of warfare that have been placed in your hands, there is no situation or scenario that you cannot get out of. As Paul puts it in verse 3, you died to this life. 
your real life is now hidden with Christ in God. And the fact we're made alive in Christ means no longer do we have to say yes to sin. Now that being said, if you haven't been raised with Christ, you effectively have no choice. The Bible says you're in bondage to sin. You're chained to it. You're bound to it. But if you've been made alive, if you've been brought into the light, if you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit of God, you aren't bound to it any longer. You can say no. You can walk away. You can walk in real freedom. You know, one of the things I believe God wants to do for some of you today is help you to see and understand the freedom that is already yours in Christ. It's an illustration that some of you would have heard me use before, but where I was growing up, there was a farm behind our house, uh, and in the yard of the farm, there's uh, this dog that would just constantly run round and round and round in circles. There was all the farmland around, never went into the farmland, just ran round and round and round in this really tight circle. And, well, no, the farmer explained the reason for this. In the early years of the dog's life, it had been chained to this post uh, in the ground. Uh, the, the only thing it could ever do was run uh, to the extent of the length of the chain. And so now, although it was freed from the chain, it was kind of programmed to think that that's as far as it could ever go. It's completely free, but it still lived as though it was chained. I want you to know today, the chain is broken. The chains on your life are gone. We are dead to sin. We're dead to our old life. Our old life has no power over us, no hold on us anymore. You are free to say no to it and to walk away, run, live in freedom. Which brings me to my last point. Fifthly and finally, grace-driven effort is violent. Very, very violent. Those who have been made alive in Christ, our nature is a holy nature and it hates the residual effects of sin. Which is why Paul tells us in verse 5 to put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you. Have nothing to do with them. Now, the problem is, many of us aren't quite so ruthless as this. It's like we don't want to kill it. I mean, that would be cruel. We just want to control it or train it. Which is why it can be quiet for a while, but just keeps popping back up again, often at the most inconvenient moments. And so, because you don't want to murder the sin in your life, more like keep it as a domesticated pet, when you get tired or frustrated or disappointed or angry, what tends to happen is you run to that sin for comfort rather than running to the God of the universe for comfort. I think this is why so many of us get stuck in this perpetual cycle of sin where we do really well for a season and then we fall back into it. I suggest it's because we haven't tried to kill it and put it to death. We've simply tried to train it or domesticate it. Listen, 
for all the I've controlled it, it only takes the right circumstances or the right setting or the right buttons to be pressed for sin to turn and do what it was always created to do, which is deceive and destroy you. And you fall for the lie. And before you know it, you're right back to square one. I think one of the main reasons a lot of us have been stuck in frustration for a long time is we're simply not violent enough towards our sin. But somehow said that these sins are kind of acceptable sins, I can get away with them. Or said that these things I can deal with, I've got it under control. But if you're not careful, it'll be like a dormant volcano waiting to explode. And so before I start to wrap this up, I just want to reread Paul's list of sinful things that might still be lurking within us. As I read this list, I want you to be open for the Holy Spirit to convict you and challenge you of where this applies to you. Paul says, have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires. Don't be greedy. Get rid of anger, rage, malicious behavior, slander, dirty language. Do not lie to each other. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. And now I want you to think what it would look like for you to put those things to death. Not to just try and control them or push them to one side. What would it mean for you to kill those things in your life? What would it mean for you to get violent without stuff? There are things that you need to get rid of, throw away. Maybe there are people that you actively now need to forgive. Maybe for you, there are people you need to make yourself accountable to, to change. What grace-driven action are you going to take as a result of this? Maybe you need to go away and pray and seek God. I'm going to help you, show you what this means for you. I want to wrap this whole thing up by going back to verse 11. Now Paul says in this new life, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free. Christ is all that matters and he lives in all of us. Now, I know I'm biased, but I love this church. If you're a visitor here and you hear this sermon, you might think, he's really got it in for this church. Now, I love this church, absolutely love this church. I'll tell you one of the reasons why. There's just this rich, wonderful diversity here, which means that this message will land differently for each of you. For some of you, maybe it feels like you've been in church your whole life. Maybe you're kind of proud of the fact that 
this message isn't really for you, it's for the person sitting next to you because in your mind you've obeyed all the rules. But by obeying all the rules, you've perhaps ended up thinking you actually have no real need of God. There are others in the room have maybe broken all of the rules and you're pretty proud of that. Probably they're the majority of us who are kind of hybrids of those two positions. Like uh, on Sundays, we're pretty good. The rest of the week, we live like Sundays, the only day of the week that God's awake and paying attention. And then there are some people, maybe you're invited along by uh, a friend uh, and you're a little curious what this thing's all about, not really quite sure what to do with it. We're just this glorious, wonderful mix of people here. But Paul's point in Colossians is ultimately it doesn't matter. Regardless of where you fall on that grid, there is one answer and one answer only, Christ and him crucified. At the end of the day, Christ is all that matters. At the end of the day, there's one hope that we all share and that is Christ. And so if you've lived in such a way that you kind of feel like you don't really need God because you've obeyed all the rules. Your only hope is Christ and his cross. If you've lived in such a way that you don't need God so I'll break all of the rules, your only hope is the cross of Christ. Regardless of whether you're wealthy or poor, whether you're pretty or ugly, whatever your race, regardless of your background, there is one hope and that is Christ and him crucified. It's all we've got. It's our only hope. My prayer is that you would seriously consider, contemplate whether you are walking and living under grace or whether you are building your hope on your own effort. Surely that's got to get exhausting for you. Surely there's no freedom you're finding in that place. My prayer is that you might understand and grasp that we have one hope, Christ and Christ alone, and that you would taste and see and experience and live in the good of his phenomenal grace for you, because out of that will spring the grace-filled motivation to change and become more like him. In the words of Paul, Christ is all that matters, and he lives in all of us who believe. And so let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. Let the message about Christ in all its richness fill your lives. And whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Amen.